Thanks, Marnie. Uh, good morning. It was great to see you. I'm glad that you were with us at the 1045 service, that you fought the waiting uh, and the parking issues as our first service ran over uh, because we were able to receive 14 communicants that uh, we got to celebrate. It was a, it was a beautiful service of, of seeing 14 of our youth uh, go through this class, professing faith in Christ, being received as community members. And uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful service. But we realized that uh, it created issues to get in, in here at 1045. So thank you for bearing with us. And I'm glad you're here. Uh, we are in a series titled Living the Resurrection Life uh, during uh, the 40 days of Eastertide, uh, which is a season in the Christian calendar uh, that will culminate two weeks from today on June 5th, uh, which is Pentecost Sunday. And so during this Easter season, uh, what we've been doing as a church is looking at different passages from the New, New Testament book of Acts. And Acts is the story of the risen Christ building his kingdom by the power of the Holy Spirit through his church. And last week, uh, Matt Mela preached on Acts chapter 11, that King Jesus is a barrier-breaking king, tearing down barriers that separate us from God and separate us from one another. That Jesus invites Jew and Gentile, every tongue, tribe, and nation, any and all who are willing to surrender and trust him to enter in and be part of his kingdom. Now, here's a reality that we often say here at Christ Central, if you've been around, and it's just something that the book of Acts reveals. The kingdom of God is already and not yet. The kingdom of God is already established in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, but it's not yet fully visible which means we live in light of and in the power of the resurrection of Jesus, yet at the same time, things do not always go according to plan because there is still a broken world, our sinful flesh, and a real enemy pushing against and resisting God's kingdom. This morning, we're going to look at a passage where the church experiences opposition, though not in the way one might expect. The opposition that we see this morning is not from those people over there, those on the outside, but it's opposition from within. Acts chapter 15 is the first major fight inside the church. So surprise, surprise, if you didn't know, the church is not always perfect. If it were, none of us would be welcomed, myself being the first among you. And so we're going to look at Acts 15, verses 1 to 21. I'm going to ask you if you're able to go ahead and stand as we give attention to God's word together this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. 
Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will, re will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Isaiah tells us the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you uh, that you reveal yourself to us. Thank you that we have uh, scriptures of the early church and the word that you gave to them, and it's a word for us today. And I pray uh, that you would meet us, Holy Spirit, communicate by your grace to our spirits that we might be changed, that we might be your people uh, more and more honoring and reflecting you. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be pleasing to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, Rachel and I got engaged almost 10 years ago exactly. May of 10 years ago is when we got engaged. And when we got engaged, I asked an older pastor friend to do some of our premarital counseling. And one of the first things that he and his wife asked us to do was to write out all of our expectations for marriage. And this is something that I now do with couples when I do premarital counseling. I will encourage couples to think through the big buckets of their lives, things like family, work, money, children, and, and then to separately write out their expectations for these buckets. So then in our next meeting, I can have them share their expectations out loud with one another and hear them process this together. It's a, it's a very helpful exercise, not because I think a couple can write out every single expectation they have or will have and then be able to process it before they get married because that's impossible. Everybody has expectations they don't know they have until they realize they have them. My point is to get couples to realize, one, everybody has expectations. Two, expectations will be unmet. And three, the key is how does one communicate with the other when expectations go unmet? And my hope in doing this is that it will build a foundation for this couple as they enter into a, a lifelong marriage together. Because the reality is that the honeymoon wears off. And reality sets in and conflicts arise through unmet expectation. And if you're able to work through the conflict, if you're able to love the other, sacrifice for the other, listen to each other, move toward each other rather than pulling away, you will find that these are some of the richest moments of love in marriage. Now, I start by saying this uh, about marriage because I think this reality, which I address in premarital counseling, is a, is a reality with one's relationship to the church. Everybody has expectations. 
a vision of what they want or hope the church to be. And it doesn't take long to realize life in the church is not always a honeymoon. We bring our expectations into our relationship with the church and expectations will go unmet. And if we want a healthy relationship in and with the church, we will have to put in the hard work of loving one another when conflict arises. And here's the hope. I believe if we do this and when we do this, we will find that these are the times that we experience love in even deeper ways than we expected in the church. In Acts 15, the honeymoon is over for the early church. It is the church's first big fight. And in this fight, we see three things from three people and how we can learn to be a healthy and loving church. We see in Paul his boldness to fight. We see in Peter his humility to listen. And we see in James his wisdom to lead. A boldness to fight, humility to listen, and wisdom to lead. Let's look first at a boldness to fight. Paul and Barnabas, they're in Antioch, and, and they're sharing about all that God has been doing in their missionary travels. I mean, they're, they're still just telling story after story of how the kingdom of God was spreading throughout the world and how the gospel of Jesus was bearing fruit among the Gentiles in powerful ways. I mean, at this point, most scholars agree that there are probably more Gentile Christians than Jewish Christians in the church. The church really is a multi-ethnic community of Jew and Gentile. And then in verse 1, Some men come down from Judea to Antioch and they're teaching, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. If you were here last week, Matt Mela preached about this, that there were Jewish Christians coming to Gentile Christians and telling them, you cannot be saved, you cannot be part of God's kingdom unless you are circumcised, which was the sign of belonging to God's covenant community. The major issue at hand was an issue of identity. How was a person identified as a Christian? In verse 2, it says, After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debated with them, no small dissension. (laughs) In other words, this was a throwdown. This was a major fight. I mean, Paul and Barnabas were fired up. They they were taking their gloves off. This was a fight. I mean, growing up as a kid... And kids often pick on kids about all sorts of things. But what's the one thing, at least for a young boy, that you just you couldn't go there and, and pick it on? Do you know what it is? Your mama. My mama. You can't talk about my mama. I'm going to take an issue. I'm taking the gloves off. If you go there, I'm taking an issue. Well, Acts 15, Paul is taking an issue. He's saying this is, this is a major deal. There's, this is not a small deal. I'm taking my gloves off. I'm fighting for this. Now, before I get into Paul's boldness to fight, I have to say this, that within the church, there are very, very few things that we need to take the gloves off for. Very few things that we need to have a major fight over. This was not a fight over music preference or small group model or types of ministry that the church should be engaged in or what a children's church should look like or the types of coffee and snacks that should be at the connect table. This was a fight over Christian identity and how a person is saved. And this is where the church draws the line. These men from Judea are teaching, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. They're coming to Gentile Christians and saying, in order to be marked out, in order to be identified as a Christian, 
you must obey Mosaic law and be circumcised. Now, we can't rush past this because these men are teaching that salvation is Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus obedience to Mosaic law. And this is what has Paul all fired up because there is no addition to Christ. There is no adding to Jesus. It is Christ and Christ alone who offers salvation. It is Christ and Christ alone who gives us our identity. This, this last year, I signed up my oldest son for Y Guides, which I, I wasn't, I didn't really know what Y Guides was, but it's kind of like Cub Scouts that I grew up with. And I, I, we signed up and we haven't been the best at attending everything, but, but we've been going to some of them. And we went to the first meeting. And in the first meeting, all the kids get a vest. And then there's numerous patches that all the kids can earn for doing different activities or experiences. And, and after you earn these patches, these badges, you iron them onto your vest so that you can let all the other kids know all that you've accomplished. Well, these Judaizers are telling Gentile Christians, yes, Jesus gives the vest of salvation, but you need badges. You need patches. You need to iron on some things to your vest and, and add to Jesus. And Paul is saying, no, no, this is where we draw the line. Because Jesus plus anything is called legalism. It's taking even good things of God's law and making them a requirement to be a Christian. And in Galatians chapter 2, Paul calls this legalism slavery. In our passage, verse 10, he says, why do you place a yoke on them? You see, Paul is bold to fight because he knows that Jesus Christ is enough. And there is no adding to him. And when someone tries to add to Jesus, Christianity becomes enslaving and binding rather than what God in, intends, which is a life of freedom. The gospel of Christianity is Jesus plus nothing. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. And we've got to proceed with caution here at Christ Central. Because we're all people prone to add to Jesus. We're all prone toward legalism, to take good things and make them requirements for the Christian life. Badges that we iron on to our Christian vests. Spiritual practices, prayer and Bible, how much we do them, we, we want to let people know. Social justice can become badges of identity. Cultural engagement can become badges of identity. It is Jesus plus nothing else. Christ and Christ alone, and we must be bold enough to fight for this because it is the foundation of Christianity. It is the essence of our faith, and it's a faith that brings freedom, not bondage. Here's the second thing we see. Not just this boldness to fight, but in Peter, we see a humility to listen. The, uh, this New Testament book that I referenced in Galatians in, in chapter 2 lets us know that, that Peter and Barnabas they were actually persuaded by these men of Judea as they taught Jesus plus, as they added on to Jesus. And in Galatians, Paul writes this, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. He, he fought Peter because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, when the Judaizers came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Even Barnabas was led astray. At this moment that Paul's talking about in Galatians 2, he, he has it out with Peter. He opposes Peter to his face. And then we pick up in Acts 15 later on as this fight arises. 
Paul and Barnabas are, are talking, having out with his men from Judea. In verse 2, Paul and Barnabas are appointed with others to go to Jerusalem to settle this fight, to meet with the council of elders and apostles who had rendered judgment. And then in verse 7, it says, After much debate about the gospel, Peter, the one who used to be afraid of these Judaizers, but after being confronted by Paul and listening to Paul, now stands up and says, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Verse 9, he says, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Verse 10, why are you placing a yoke, this bondage upon Gentile disciples? Verse 11, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Here's what I'm pointing out. Peter was changed from a man opposing Paul to a man convinced by Paul to now a man defending Paul before the council of elders. Peter shows us a man humble enough to listen and be corrected. If you've ever been in an argument with someone and they catch you off guard and they say, you know what, you're right, I'm wrong. All of a sudden the tension and the fight, it's, it's deflated. And instead of animosity and division, it creates love and, and unity. A humility to listen to other people. It's a rare thing these days. We live in a time of self-righteousness and defensiveness and talking over and talking at rather than humbly listening and treating each other with dignity and with care. We just watch a political debate. <laughs> it's painful. We have social media platforms to feel self-righteous, to talk at people, to defend our cause and to defend ourselves. But if we want to be a healthy and loving church, we have to have the humility to listen to others and even be corrected by others. And the way toward humility to listen and be corrected is, is actually made possible by my first point. To know that one's identity is in Christ alone, not in being right or wrong, not about being on this side or that, but being in Christ and Christ alone. We're set free in Christ to be humble. We're set free in Christ to be corrected. At Christ Central, there will be many misunderstandings in our church. I have been and will be part of misunderstandings. And it will happen because of cultural differences, social differences, even theological differences. But if we live low lives of humility, if we listen to one another, if we give dignity and care to the other who are in our church, and we move toward each other in love and in unity, we'll find our church to be healthy and a loving place to be. In Paul, we see a boldness to fight. In Peter, we see humility to listen. Lastly, in James, we see a wisdom to lead. I've got to share a little bit more about James here because this is the first time in the book of Acts that we read about James. And there's multiple Jameses in the New Testament. This James is the brother of Jesus. And James, this James did not follow Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry, public ministry. It wasn't until after Jesus was crucified that James believed and followed Jesus. And most scholars agree that James was the prominent leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was a pillar of the early church. It's been noted that his nickname was Camel Knees because he prayed so much on his knees that they became hardened like the knees of a camel. So it's no wonder that James led with such incredible wisdom. He even wrote a great chapter on wisdom in James chapter 1. He, he was a man of prayer, a man who depended not on his own understanding 
But in all his ways, he acknowledged and trusted his Lord. And then we see James acting in verse 15. Look at verse 12. It says, the assembly fell silent listening to Paul and Barnabas after they finished speaking. James, verse 13, replies, brothers. He says, brothers toward these men from Judea. Brothers, it's a, it's a term of endearment. And then, he, and then he calls Peter Simeon, as though he's addressing this familiar friend with love. James begins by addressing both sides in this conflict with love. And then he quotes the prophet Amos in verse 16 to 17. He quotes Amos 9, which is this vision Amos had of God's kingdom, this fully restored kingdom of Jew and Gentile. And it's God's word from Amos that gives James wisdom in his leadership. That there is this very big theological issue at stake here. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, but James doesn't oversimplify this. He realizes that the, there's layered issues and complexity here. It's not solely about a theological belief, nor is it solely about ethnicity, this Jew and Gentile community. In this vision of Amos, James is reminding the assembly that in a multi-ethnic community of Jew and Gentile, there will be cultural differences, missional differences, and even ethical differences. And so in wisdom, in seeing the perplexities and the complexities of this multi-ethnic church, James calls to both sides, Jew and Gentile, to move toward each other, to sacrifice for the sake of loving each other and for the sake of God's mission to the world. Look at verse 19. He says, we should not trouble the Gentiles who turn to God. Let's not add or burden them. He's asking the Jews to move toward Gentiles. Because James knows that if the Jews burden Gentiles with Mosaic law, they will always feel like second-class citizens. And then in verse 20, he says, Gentiles should abstain from things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, and food strangled in blood. He's asking Gentiles to move toward the Jews. Because James knows if Gentiles live however they want, unaware of Jewish custom and culture, the Jews would never be able to associate with them. It would be too much to overcome. Really unbelievable wisdom from James. He gives this common vision of God's kingdom, this multi-ethnic kingdom of Jew and Gentile. And then out of this reality, he asks both sides to sacrifice for the sake of the other, to love and move toward each other. Church, if we want to be healthy, we need to see that there are complexities in being in a community with people different than us. And we need to believe and understand that our ultimate identity, it's not in our badges of political preference or social agendas or even missional and ministry preferences. But our identity is that we are one in Christ. And this identity propels us to love one another, to sacrifice for one another, and to move toward each other just as Christ loved, sacrificed, and moved toward us. A healthy marriage requires work. So does being a healthy church. When you get married, you envision long walks together and candlelit dinners, nothing but good times. But I'm convinced that the real stuff of love and marriage comes in those moments where you can really share honestly, listen attentively, and you both take steps of love toward each other. That's the real stuff. In Christ Central, I know our community is not perfect. I wouldn't be one of your pastors if it was. And I can promise you this, 
I will let you down. Evan will let you down. Our staff, our leaders will let you down. Our church will let you down. This church is not always what I expect or hoped it to be. It will not always be what you expect or hope it to be. But if we want to be a community where differences are welcomed and if we want to be united in love around, around Christ, it will require hard work, which means we need to spend time together. We need to invite one another into our homes. We need to truly listen to one another and give dignity and care. We need to get to know one another and sacrifice for the sake of the other. And we need to do this over and over and over. And I promise that we'll find in those moments that in the hard work of loving each other, the church is even better than what we expected it to be. And it's only when we trust and believe that Jesus Christ is our one foundation, our one hope, that we will be propelled to love and to be this way as a community and as a church. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would make us healthy, make us a family, make us a community where, Lord, the only thing we're willing to fight over is the identity that we have in Christ. Prevent us from ever adding anything to Jesus, from thinking that there are badges we pass out to wear and to showcase our spirituality. But Lord, our righteousness is in Christ alone. That's all we need and it's freely given to us by faith. And help us to boast in that alone and help us to defend that. By your spirit, would you convict us when we are tempted to, toward legalism, toward adding to Jesus? Lord, would you produce in us humility because we are in Christ and we know that we are in you, Lord, help us to listen, help us to learn, help us to grow, help us to love one another deeply. Give us wisdom as we navigate the, the complexities, the differences of being a community of people that are different from one another. Give us wisdom as we try to be a church in a city and a culture, uh, Lord, that is uh, not always receptive uh, of this gospel we believe. And so, Lord, we, we ask for your grace to be poured out upon us. Uh, and we pray, I pray, that Jesus Christ and Christ alone would be our foundation. And you would set us free to be a community of love and a light in a city on a hill. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.